Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Second half of Chapter 28, Reductionism. Minerva looked at Dumbledore. Dumbledore gazed back inquiringly at her. Do you understand any of that? The headmaster said, sounding bemused. It had been the most complete and utter gibberish that Minerva could ever remember hearing. She was feeling a bit embarrassed about having summoned the headmaster to hear it, but she'd been given explicit instructions. I'm afraid not, Professor McGonagall said primly. So, Dumbledore said. The silver beard swung away from her. The old wizard's twinkling gaze looked somewhere else once more. You suspect you might be able to do something that other wizards can't do. Something we think is impossible. The three of them stood within the headmaster's private transfiguration workroom, where the shining phoenix of Dumbledore's patroness had told her to bring Harry, moments after her own patroness had reached him. Light shone down from the skylights and illuminated the great seven-pointed alchemical diagrams drawn in the center of the circular room, showing it to be a little dusty, which saddened Minerva. Transfiguration research was one of Dumbledore's great enjoyments, and she'd known how pressed for time he'd been lately, but not that he was this pressed. And now, Harry Potter was going to waste even more of the headmaster's time, but she certainly couldn't blame Harry for that. He'd done the proper thing in coming to her to say that he'd had an idea for doing something in Transfiguration that was currently believed to be impossible. And she had done exactly what she'd been told to do. She'd ordered Harry to be quiet and not discuss anything with her until she had consulted the headmaster and they'd finished moving to a secure location. If Harry had started out by saying what specifically he thought he could do, she wouldn't have bothered. Look, I know it's hard to explain, Harry said, sounding a little embarrassed. What it adds up to is that what you believe conflicts with scientists' believe, in a case where I'd genuinely expect scientists to know more than wizards. Minerva would have sighed out loud if Dumbledore hadn't seemed to be taking the whole thing very seriously. Harry's idea stemmed from simple ignorance, nothing more. If you changed half of a metal ball into glass, the whole ball had a different form. To change the part was to change the whole, and that meant removing the whole form and replacing it with a different one. What would it even mean to transfigure only half a metal ball? That the metal ball as a whole had the same form as before, but half the ball now had a different form? Mr. Potter, said Professor McGonagall, what you want to do isn't just impossible, it's illogical. If you change half of something, you did change the whole. Indeed, but Harry is the hero, so he may be able to do things that are logically impossible. Minerva would have rolled her eyes if she hadn't gone numb a long time ago. Supposing it was possible, can you think of any reason why the results would differ in any way from ordinary transfiguration? Minerva frowned. The fact that the concept was literally unimaginable was presenting her with some difficulty, but she tried to take it at face value. A transfiguration imposed on only half of a metal ball... Strange things happening at the interface. But that should be no different than transfiguring the object as a whole into a form with two different parts. Dumbledore nodded. That is my own thought as well. And Harry, if your theory is correct, it implies that what you want to do is exactly like any other transfiguration, only applied to a part of the subject rather than the whole? No changes at all? Yes, that's the whole point. Dumbledore looked at her again. 
Minerva, can you think of any reason whatsoever why that would be dangerous? No, said Minerva, after she had finished searching through her memory. Likewise myself. All right, then. Since this ought to be exactly analogous to ordinary transfiguration in all respects, and since we cannot think of any reason whatsoever why it would be dangerous, I think that the second degree of caution will suffice. Minerva was surprised, but she didn't object. Dumbledore was by far her senior in transfiguration. He had tried literally thousands of new transfigurations without ever choosing a degree of caution that was too low. He had used transfiguration in combat, and he was still alive. If the headmaster thought the second degree was enough, it was enough. That Harry was certainly going to fail was, of course, completely irrelevant. The two of them started setting up the wards and detection webs. The most important web was the one that checked to make sure no transfigured material had entered the air. Harry would be enclosed in a separate shell of force with its own air supply just to be certain. Only his wand allowed to leave the shield and the interface tight. They were inside Hogwarts, so they couldn't automatically apparate out any material that showed signs of spontaneous combustion, but they could launch it out of a skylight almost as fast. The windows all folded outward for exactly that reason. Harry himself would go out a different skylight at the first sign of trouble. Harry watched them working, his face looking a little frightened. Don't worry, said Professor McGonagall in the middle of her running description. This almost certainly won't be necessary, Mr. Potter. If we expected anything to go wrong, you would not be allowed to try. It's just ordinary precautions for any transfiguration no one has ever tried before. Harry swallowed and nodded. And a few minutes later, Harry was strapped into the safety chair and resting his wand against a metal ball, one that, based on his current test scores, should have been too large for him to transfigure in less than 30 minutes. And a few minutes after that, Minerva was leaning against the wall, feeling faint. There was a small patch of glass on the ball where Harry's wand had rested. Harry didn't say, I told you so, but the smug look on his sweating face said it for him. Dumbledore was casting analytic charms on the ball, looking more and more intrigued by the moment. Thirty years had melted off his face. Fascinating. It's exactly as he claimed. He simply transfigured a part of the subject without transfiguring the whole. You say it's really just a conceptual limitation, Harry? Yes, but a deep one. Just knowing it had to be conceptual limitation wasn't enough. I had to suppress the part of my mind that was making the error and think instead about the underlying reality that scientists figured out. Truly fascinating. I take it that for any other wizard to do the same would require months of study if they could do it at all. And may I ask you to partially transfigure some other subject? Probably yes, and of course. Half an hour later, Minerva was feeling equally bewildered but considerably reassured about the safety issues. It was the same, aside from being logically impossible. I believe that's enough, Headmaster. I suspect partial transfiguration is more tiring than the ordinary sort. Getting less so with practice, said the exhausted and pale boy, voice unsteady. But yeah, you've got that right. The process of extracting Harry from the wards took another minute, and then Minerva escorted him to a much more comfortable chair, and Dumbledore produced an ice cream soda. Congratulations, Mr. Potter, said Professor McGonagall, and meant it. She would have bet almost anything against that working. Congratulations, indeed. Even I did not make any original discoveries in Transfiguration before the age of fourteen. Not since the day of Dorothy Senjak has any genius flowered so early. Thanks, 
Harry said, sounding a little surprised. Nonetheless, I think it would be most wise to keep this happy event a secret, at least for now. Harry, did you discuss your idea with any other person before you spoke to Professor McGonagall? There was silence. Um, I don't want to turn anyone over to the Inquisition, but I did tell one other student. The word almost exploded from Professor McGonagall's lips. What? You discussed a completely novel form of transfiguration with a student before consulting a recognized authority? Do you have any idea how irresponsible that was? I'm sorry, I didn't realize. The boy looked appropriately frightened, and Minerva felt something inside her relax. At least Harry understood how foolish he'd been. You must swear Miss Granger to secrecy, Dumbledore said gravely. And do not tell anyone else unless there is an extremely good reason for it, and they too have sworn. Uh, why? Minerva was wondering the same thing. Once again, the headmaster was thinking too far ahead for her to keep up. Because you can do something that no one else will believe you can do. Something completely unexpected. It may prove to be your critical advantage, Harry, and we must preserve it. Please, trust me in this. Professor McGonagall nodded, her firm face showing nothing of her inner confusion. Please do, Mr. Potter. All right. Once we have finished examining your materials, you may practice partial transfiguration on glass to steel and steel to glass only, with Miss Granger to act as your spotter. Naturally, if either of you suspect any symptom of any form of transfiguration sickness, inform a professor at once. Just before Harry left the workroom, with his hand on the door handle, the boy turned back and said, As long as we're here, have either of you noticed anything different about Professor Snape? Different? said the headmaster. Minerva didn't let her wry smile show on her face. Of course the boy was apprehensive about the evil potions master, since he had no way of knowing why Severus was to be trusted. It would have been odd to say the least, explaining to Harry that Severus was still in love with his mother. I mean, has his behavior changed recently in any way? Not that I have seen, the headmaster said slowly. Why do you ask? Harry shook his head. I don't want to prejudice your own observations by saying. Just keep an eye out, maybe? That sent a quiver of unease through Minerva in a way that no outright accusation of Severus could have. Harry bowed to both of them respectfully and took his leave. Albus, Minerva said after the boy had gone. How did you know to take Harry seriously? I would have thought his idea merely impossible. The old wizard's face turned grave. The same reason it must be kept secret, Minerva. The same reason I told you to come to me if Harry made any such claim. Because it is a power that Voldemort knows not. The words took a few seconds to sink in. And then the cold shiver went down her spine, as it always did when she remembered. It had started out as an ordinary job interview, Sybil Trelawney applying for the position of Professor of Divination. The one with the power to vanquish the Dark Lord approaches. Born to those who have thrice defied him, born as the seventh month dies, and the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal. But he will have power the Dark Lord knows not. 
and either must destroy all but a remnant of the other, for those two different spirits cannot exist in the same world. Those dreadful words, spoken in that terrible booming voice, didn't seem to fit something like partial transfiguration. Perhaps not then, Dumbledore said after Minerva tried to explain. I confess that I have been hoping for something that would help in fighting Voldemort's Horcrux, wherever he may have hidden it. But... The old wizard shrugged. Prophecies are tricky things, Minerva, and it is best to take no chances. The smallest thing may prove decisive if it remains unexpected. And what do you suppose he meant about Severus? There I have no idea. Unless Harry is making a move against Severus, and thought that an open question might be taken seriously, where a direct allegation would be dismissed. And if that was indeed what happened, Harry correctly reasoned that I would not trust that it was so. Let us simply keep watch without prejudice, as he asked. Aftermath 1. Um, Hermione? Harry said in a very small voice. I think I owe you a really, really, really big apology. Aftermath 2 Alyssa Cornfoot's eyes were slightly glazed as she gazed upon the potions master giving her class a stern lecture, holding up a tiny bronze bean and saying something about screaming puddles of human flesh. Ever since the start of this year, she'd been having trouble listening in potions. She kept staring at their awful, mean, greasy professor and fantasizing about special detentions. There was probably something really wrong with her, but she just couldn't seem to stop doing it. Ow! Alyssa said then. Snape had just flicked the bronze bean unerringly at Alyssa's forehead. Miss Cornfoot, said the potions master, his voice cutting. This is a delicate potion and if you cannot pay attention, you will hurt your classmates, not just yourself. See me after class. The last four words didn't help her any, but she tried harder and managed to get through the day without melting anyone. After class, Alyssa approached the desk. Part of her wanted to stand there meekly, with her face abashed and her hands clasped penitently behind her back, just in case. But some quiet instinct told her that this might be a bad idea. So instead, she just stood there with her face neutral in a posture that was very proper for a young lady and said, Professor? Miss Cornfoot, Snape said without looking up from the sheets he was grading. I do not return your affections. I begin to find your stares disturbing, and you will restrain your eyes henceforth. Is that quite clear? Yes, said Alyssa in a strangled squeak, and Snape dismissed her, and she fled the classroom with her cheeks flaming like molten lava. End chapter 28 Chapter 29, Egocentric Bias There'd been a sinking feeling in Hermione's stomach lately, every time she heard the other students talking about her and Harry. She'd been in a shower stall this morning when she'd overheard a conversation between Morag and Padma that had been the last straw piled on top of quite a lot of straws. She was starting to think that getting involved in a rivalry with Harry Potter had been a terrible mistake. If she'd just stayed away from Harry Potter, she could have been Hermione Granger, the brightest academic star of Hogwarts, who was earning more points for Ravenclaw than anyone. 
She wouldn't have been as famous as The Boy Who Lived, but she would have been famous for herself. Instead, The Boy Who Lived had an academic rival, and her name happened to be Hermione Granger. And worse, she had gone on a date with him. The idea of getting into a romance with Harry had seemed like an appealing idea at first. She'd read books like that, and if there was anyone in Hogwarts who was a candidate for the heroine's love interest, it was obviously Harry Potter. Bright, funny, famous, sometimes scary. So she'd forced Harry into going on a date with her. And now she was his love interest. Or worse, one of the options on his dinner menu. She'd been in a shower stall that morning and just about to turn on the water when she'd heard giggles coming from outside. And she'd heard Morag talking about how that muggle-born girl probably wouldn't fight hard enough to win against Genevra Weasley, and Padma speculating that Harry Potter might decide he wanted both. It was like they didn't understand that girls had options on their dinner menu and boys fought over them. But that wasn't even the part that hurt, really. It was that when she scored 98 on one of Professor McGonagall's tests, the news wasn't that Hermione Granger had scored the highest in the class. The news was that Harry Potter's rival had scored seven more points than him. If you got too close to the boy who lived, you became part of his story. You didn't get your own. And the thought had come to Hermione that she should just walk away, but that would have been too sad. But she did want to get back what she'd accidentally given away by letting herself become known as Harry's rival. She wanted to be a separate person again instead of Harry Potter's third leg. Was that too much to ask? It was a hard trap to climb out of once you fell in. No matter how high you scored in class, even if you did something that deserved a special dinnertime announcement, it just meant you were rivaling Harry Potter again. But she thought she'd come up with a way. Something to do that wouldn't be seen as pushing up on the opposite end of Harry Potter's seesaw. It would be hard. It would go against her nature. She would have to fight someone very evil. And she would need to ask someone even more evil for help. Hermione raised her hand to knock upon that terrible door. She hesitated. Hermione realized she was being silly and raised her hand a bit higher. She tried to knock again. Her hand quite failed to touch the door. And then the door swung open anyway. Dear me, said the spider, sitting in its web. Was it really that hard to lose a single quarrel point, Miss Granger? Hermione stood there with her hand raised, her cheeks growing pink. It had been. Well, Miss Granger, I shall be merciful, said the evil Professor Quirrell. Consider it already lost. There, I have taken a hard choice from you. Are you not grateful? Professor Quirrell? Hermione managed to say in a voice that squeaked a little. I have a lot of quirrell points, don't I? You do indeed. The one less than you had before. Terrible, isn't it? Just think, if I don't like your reason for coming here, you could lose another fifty. Maybe I'll take them away one by one by one. Hermione's cheeks were going even redder. You're really evil. Did anyone ever tell you that? Miss Granger, Professor Quirrell said gravely, it can be dangerous to give people compliments like that when they have not been truly earned. The recipient might feel bashful and undeserving and want to do something worthy of your praise. Now, what was it you wanted to talk to me about, Miss Granger? It was after lunch on Thursday afternoon, and Hermione and Harry were ensconced in a little library nook, with the quietest field up so they could talk. Harry was lying stomach down on the ground, with his elbows resting on the floor, and his head in his hands, and his feet kicking up casually behind him. 
Hermione was occupying a stuffed chair much too large for her, like she was the Hermione center of a candy shell. Harry had suggested they could, as a first pass, read just the titles of all the books in the library, and then Hermione could read all the tables of contents. Hermione had thought this was a brilliant idea. She'd never done that with a library before. Unfortunately, there was a slight flaw in this plan. Namely, they were both Ravenclaws. Hermione was reading a book called Magical Mnemonics. Harry was reading a book called The Skeptical Wizard. Each had thought it was just one special exception they would make only this one time, and neither had yet realized that it was impossible for either of them to ever finish reading all the book titles no matter how hard they tried. The quiet of their little nook was broken by two words. Oh no! Harry suddenly said out loud, sounding like the words had been torn out of him. There was a bit more quiet. He didn't! Harry said in the same voice. Then she heard Harry start giggling helplessly. Hermione looked up from her book. All right, what is it? I just found out why you never ask the Weasleys about the family rat. It's really awful and I shouldn't be laughing and I'm a terrible person. Yes, you are, Hermione said primly. Tell me too. Okay, first the background. There's a whole chapter in this book about serious black conspiracy theories. You remember who that is, right? Of course, said Hermione. Sirius Black was a traitor, a friend of James Potter who'd betrayed the location of Harry's parents to Voldemort. So it turns out there were a number of, shall we say, irregularities associated with Black going to Azkaban. He didn't get a trial, and the junior minister in charge when the Aurors arrested Black was none other than Cornelius Fudge, who became our current Minister of Magic. That sounded a little suspicious to Hermione, too, and she said as much. Harry made a shrugging motion with his shoulders as he lay on the floor looking at his book. Suspicious things happen all the time, and if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can always find something. But no trial? said Hermione. It was right after the Dark Lord's defeat, Harry said, his voice serious as he said it. Things were incredibly chaotic, and when the Aurors tracked down Black, he was standing there laughing in a street ankle-deep in blood, with twenty eyewitnesses to recount how he'd killed a friend of my father's named Peter Pettigrew, plus twelve bystanders. I'm not saying I approve of Black not getting a trial, but these are wizards we're talking about here, so it's not really any more suspicious than, I don't know, the sort of thing people point to when they want to argue over who shot John F. Kennedy. So anyway, Sirius Black is the wizarding Lee Harvey Oswald. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about who really betrayed my parents instead of him, and one of the favorites is Peter Pettigrew, and this is where it starts getting complicated. Hermione listened, fascinated. But how do you go from there to the Weasley's pet rat? Hold on, I'm getting there. Now, after Pettigrew's death, it came out that he'd been a spy for the light. Not a double agent, just someone who snuck around and found things out. He'd been good at that since he was a teenager. Even in Hogwarts, he had a reputation for finding out all sorts of secrets. So the conspiracy theory is that Pettigrew became an unregistered animagus while he was still in Hogwarts. An animagus of something small that could scurry around and listen to conversations. The main problem being that successful animagi are rare and doing it as a teenager would be really unlikely. And so, of course, the conspiracy theory says that my father and Black were unregistered animagi too. And in that conspiracy theory, Pettigrew himself killed the twelve bystanders, turned into a small animagus form, and ran. So Michael Shermer says there are four additional problems with this. One, Black was the only one who knew where my parents were. Harry's voice was a little hard as he said that. Two, Black was a more likely suspect to start with than Pettigrew. There's a rumor Black deliberately tried to get a student killed during his time at Hogwarts, and he was from this really nasty pureblood family. Bellatrix Black was literally his cousin. 
3. Black was 20 times the fighting wizard that Pettigrew was, even if he wasn't as smart. The duel between them would have been like Professor Quirrell versus Professor Sprout. Pettigrew probably didn't even get a chance to draw his wand, let alone fake all the evidence the conspiracy theory requires. And 4. Black was standing in the street, laughing. But the rat, said Hermione. Right. Well, to make a long story short, Bill Weasley decided that his little brother Percy's pet rat was Pettigrew's animagus form. Hermione's jaw dropped. Yeah, you wouldn't exactly expect Peter Pettigrew to be living a sad and furtive life as the pet rat of an enemy wizarding family. He'd either be with the Malfoys or, more likely, off in the Caribbean after a bit of plastic surgery. Anyway, Bill knocks out his little brother Percy, stuns and grabs the rat, sends out all these emergency owl messages... Oh no, Hermione said, the words torn out of her, and somehow manages to gather Dumbledore, the Minister of Magic, and the Head Auror. He didn't. And of course when they get there they think he's crazy, but they use Vertus Occlumens on the rat anyway, just to be sure. And what do they discover? She would have died. A rat. You win a cookie! So they dragged poor Bill Weasley off to St. Mungo's, and it turned out to be a pretty standard schizophrenic break. It just happens to some people, especially young men around what we'd consider college age. Guy was convinced he was 97 years old and had died and gone back in time to his younger self via train station. And he responded perfectly well to antipsychotics and is back to normal and everything's fine now. Except people don't talk as much about serious black conspiracy theories, and you don't ever ask the Weasleys about the family rat. Hermione was giggling helplessly. It was really awful and she shouldn't be laughing and she was a terrible person. The thing I don't understand, Harry said, after their giggles had died down, is why Black would hunt down Peter Pettigrew instead of running as fast as he could. He had to know the Aurors would be after him. I wonder if they got the reason out of Black before they took him to Azkaban. See, this is why people who are absolutely positively guilty still go through the legal system and get trials. Hermione had to agree with that. Soon, Harry was done with his book while Hermione was only halfway through hers. Hers was a much more difficult book than Harry's, but she still felt embarrassed about that. And then she had to put magical mnemonics back on the shelf and drag herself away because it was time for her to face the most dreaded class in Hogwarts. Broomstick riding. Harry tagged along as she walked there, even though his own class wasn't until an hour and a half later, like a fighter jet escorting a sad little propeller plane on its way to its own funeral. The boy wished her goodbye in a quiet, sympathetic voice, and she walked onto the grassy fields of doom. And there was much shrieking and almost falling and horrible brushes with death and the ground in completely the wrong place and the sun getting in her eyes and Morag buzzing her and Mandy thinking she was being subtle about always being near enough to catch her if she fell and she knew the other students were laughing at both of them but she never said anything to Mandy because she didn't actually want to die. After 10 million years the class ended and she was back on the ground where she belonged until next Thursday. Sometimes, she had nightmares about it always being Thursday. Why everyone had to learn this, when they were just going to apparate or flew or portkey everywhere once they grew up, was a complete and utter mystery to Hermione. Nobody actually needed to ride broomsticks as an adult. It was like being forced to play dodgeball in P.E. At least Harry had the decency to be ashamed of being good at it. End first half of chapter 29. Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Trelawney by Paula. Severus Snape by Brian Jones. Minerva McGonagall, read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. 
Dumbledore, Drake Walker. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion of Chapter 29, Egocentric Bias.